Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It is so good to be with you as we resume our teaching series on the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. A four-part study that we have been moving in and out of over the past year titled Certainty. Now that's taken from the author's stated purpose in Luke chapter 1 verse 4 that this orderly account, this historical record, this narrative that I'm presenting, says Luke, was written so that you may have certainty in all of those things that you've been taught. Wouldn't we all like to have that? Certainty in the things we've been taught about what Jesus said, what he did, his mission, his messiahship, his message. And so far, we have gone through the first 17 chapters of Luke, 1 through 17. We've seen the birth of Jesus. We've looked at the teaching and the healing ministry of Jesus in and around Galilee. And then this past fall, we spent an extended time looking at the journey of Jesus as he set his face toward the cross and to Jerusalem. And so here we are, the final set of certainty messages Luke chapters 18 through 24. And beginning this morning through Easter Sunday, we are going to be looking at these final few days of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Looking at the outskirts of Jerusalem, moving into the triumphal entry, and looking at all the events that occur during what we refer to as Passion Week. And now, you, you may be thinking if you're new to our community and, and just joining us over the last several weeks or months, or maybe today's your first day to join us, and you're thinking, I know, oh man, part four of four, am I, am I jumping in at the wrong time? Can I get anything out of this? Let me assure you, yes, this is not like starting the final film of a multi-film franchise. What you have are two reasons why you are not disadvantaged. The first is this you can easily catch up. In fact, we all should be looking back at Luke chapters 1 through 17. Read them. And or take a look at our sermon guide. We have a few, just a few hard copies left in the Resource Center, but online you can download one, you can view it, you can use it, whatever you want. But those sermon guides include the weekly passages from the past 17 chapters. They include background context and questions and historical information, so you can definitely look at that. And then for the overachievers among us, you are more than welcome to hop on over to the River Oaks Community Church YouTube channel and binge watch 29 sermons <laughs> on the Gospel of Luke. Yes! Valentine's, there's, there we go. Spring break, whatever you got. Or maybe just grab a sermon guide. <laughs> But the most important reason that you're not at a disadvantage when it comes to jumping in right now, why each of us are here for the perfect timing in this sermon series, is that when we look at these next seven chapters of Luke, we have central to the gospel good news message, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We have, there, there is very little more mission critical than what we will be looking at over these next several chapters. So you are jumping in at the right time, and I would just encourage all of us to hang in there and let's see what the Lord would show us as we finish out this series. Now before we get into this morning, I'll remind us one more time as we have ever since we started this. If you are someone here today who says that you do not have certainty 
on the things that were taught about Jesus, then our prayer is that the power of the gospel message would move you toward that certainty. And if you're here today and you say, no, I do, I have certainty on those things that were taught about Jesus, then our prayer is that the power of the gospel message would move you toward a more consistent and more confident sharing and showing of that gospel message in certainty. And so today as we begin, we are going to pick up with Jesus teaching to a crowd, preparing to share one final parable. This is the last parable that we see recorded in Scripture. It's a, a, a parable of contrast. It's a simple illustration about two kinds of people. Two categories for the listener, for you and me, to determine which one we most resemble. And I realize we, we need to be very careful when we attempt to categorize one another into either-or categories. Uh, that sort of duality, we have to be very careful. We can't exactly shoehorn each of us into one or two kinds. But that said, I don't, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear one of those countless clever sayings, you know, that generally begins with, fundamentally, when it comes to, insert, category, there are two kinds of people in the world. Have you guys heard those sayings before? Right? I, I don't know when you hear them, but when I hear them, I generally find that there is a truth in the point that's being made. I resonate with either one or the other of those kinds. Or at minimum, I catch the spirit from which the principle is being taught. So, for example, the farmer's almanac once said that when it comes to those relationships and people we surround ourselves with in our lifetime, there are two kinds. One that tend to complicate our life and one that tend to simplify it. Maybe. Dear Abby once advised that she has noticed over time that there are two kinds of people. Those who walk into a room and say, there you are. And those who walk into a room and say, here I am. None of that. Mark Twain used to say about public speakers, there are two kinds. Those who admit to being nervous and those who are liars. <laughs> I admit it. <laughs> I admit it. And my personal favorite, maybe you've heard me say this before, but uh, I believe when it comes to mathematics that there are actually three kinds of people. Those who get it and those who don't. I'll let you think about that this afternoon. Extremes of contrast. Two ends of a spectrum. Opposites. This is the kind of two kinds of people rationale that Jesus is describing in the parable. And again, the question to the listeners, to you and me this morning, is which kind do we most resemble? Which kind do we most want to be intentional about imitating? Which kind represents our understanding of what God desires of us? And so we pick up Luke chapter 18, verse 9. We read, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke is setting the scene before Jesus tells the parable. And the one thing I find really interesting is that there are approximately 40 parables throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus would use when he teaches. And in practically every one of them, he has directed a specific message to someone in the crowd. They were intentional, pointed teaching moments. 
In this case, there seems to be some who were listening in who were deceived about their righteousness. They're standing before God. In some way, they thought of themselves as especially right, morally superior. And interestingly enough, this self-righteousness, if you notice, revealed itself through contempt for others. Luke says there's some in the crowd that were so self-righteous that they looked down on others who they considered less righteous. You know, in Bible study and small groups often in our conversations, we'll make that sort of insight or observation. And then we'll look around the room and we'll, um, we'll ask one another, do you know someone like that? Have you ever seen someone do that to someone else? I would suggest that in the spirit of the increased directness and urgency that Jesus has been demonstrating in his teaching over the past few chapters, the better question for us this morning is to ask ourselves, has my self-righteousness ever resulted in contempt toward others? Have I ever considered myself or given myself undue importance with a judgment of superiority over someone else. Yeah, I'm thinking most of us would, at least in some part, have to say yes. Maybe we can think back to to where and how. But the good news is that that means we should be all ears for what Jesus is about to tell us. It's very applicable this morning. And so he begins the parable, and he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, And the other, a tax collector. Wait, this is different. These are two church-going men. These aren't like some of the other parables. These aren't pagans or uh, self-professed secular or atheist men, ungodly men. These these are two church-goers. And when we look at that, just seeing the introduction, chances are 2,000 years removed, we've already gotten our mind that of these two men, Jesus is most likely going to make the Pharisee the bad guy. Right? We're already thinking it. And somehow the tax collector, the good guy. Well, maybe he will. (laughs) And maybe he won't. But before we get to that, in order for us to truly get the impact, to grasp the application for you and me this morning, we have to fully appreciate and we have to know that when they, the crowd heard this description, they would have automatically viewed the Pharisee in a positive light. Unlike today, the term Pharisee did not carry a negative connotation or any disdain. Rather, Pharisees were considered the spiritual elite, the true men of God. They knew the scriptures inside and out. They prayed, they fasted, they followed the laws. Behavior that God expected from everyone. They were also the true patriots of Israel, defenders of the culture, major philanthropists. Every parent could only hope their son would grow up to be a Pharisee. In contrast, the tax collector, he was the worst of the worst. If this was interactive theater, I was thinking about this last night. If this was interactive theater this morning... Every time the word tax collector came up, you would, yeah, I'm sure they did too. Wow, that was great. Thank you. (laughs) 
get, we can fill it into the sandals. That's what we're doing. 2,000 years. You hear the tax collector. Boo, right? Spiritual outcast. Allowed into the temple for prayer. For prayer. That was it. Could not participate in any other way. He was a traitor. He was employed by the Roman oppressors. The embodiment of all that was greed and dishonesty. More despised than the Gentiles or even those Samaritans. So in our context, we might read, you know, two individuals went up to church one Sunday morning. One, an elder, known for practicing all that was good and right. And the other, a troublemaker, whose questionable reputation preceded himself. Just like the original audience, by that introduction alone, before a closer look, most of us would automatically identify each of those characters with the role they were likely to play. But here's the thing. Here's what we've seen throughout all of Luke. It's what we refer to as the radical reversal. The upside-down kingdom. The counterintuitive ways of God where so often those considered most unworthy are the ones God chooses to elevate. And those who consider themselves most worthy are the ones God chooses to humble. And don't misunderstand the spiritual lesson here. We're going to keep these separate. We're not teaching on the point of spiritual disciplines and obedience, remaining faithful in devotion to God, uh, uh, maturing in our faith. These are all good and godly pursuits. Therefore, avoiding them is not the lesson of the parable. So if the, if the Pharisee does turn out to be the bad guy, there must be something else at play. There's some other reason Jesus is going to use him as an example. And we're going to see that as we read more. The first thing we read in this contrasting parable is we notice their approach to worship. One prays, enters into the temple with an emphasis on religion or religious works, while the other expresses sincere repentance. We read in verses 11 through 13, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I, 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 you don't have to be an ophthalmologist to know that the Pharisee has eye disease. He comes to the temple and he tells God all the things he has done and how upright he has lived as if God is impressed. In no way indicating the need for God in completing those works or helping him to live in an upright way. Basically, temple attendance, worship, wasn't worship at all. It was the check mark on the to-do list, a religious exercise, an opportunity to be seen, all the while robbing God of the glory that was due him. Now look at the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see the contrast? Start. This man comes before God pleading for what only God can do for him. He realized he had nothing to offer. No list, no works, only his sin and a desperate petition for mercy. Temple attendance to this man 
was nothing short of a necessary lifeline. An opportunity to express worth, worth worth-ship to God by recognizing his own condition. And so when we look at these two, we have that spectrum of how to worship. Each man represents these polar extremes. And while we might not be as completely self-absorbed, overtly self-glorifying as the Pharisee, and we might not be as completely down and out, mourning our sin with such intensity as the tax collector, our application, our thought process, our question to reflect on is then where does our worship fall within that spectrum? Where does it point toward? Where am I leaning to? And some ways that we might be able to determine that is through some questions. We might ask ourselves, do I enter worship this morning with an awareness of my sin before God? Or an awareness of my upright and moral standing as if expecting a favor from others and from God? Do I exhibit symptoms of eye disease? Am I much more ready to share what I have done for God than what God has done for me? Do I enter with a contrite heart, broken nearly, to the point of confession, repentance of my sin before God? Acknowledging as the Apostle Paul might of ourselves when he wrote, I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. The Apostle Paul. So where does I worship fall along the spectrum? I think that's one application this morning to these two contrasting approaches to worship. One with eyes on self, one with eyes on God. But then secondly, from within those same verses, I think we find the most glaring difference between them. Perhaps the most important difference between them for our learning and understanding. The condition of the heart. Where one is filled with pride, the other is filled with humility. The Pharisee, standing by himself, no doubt standing in a place and in a way where he could be seen, he could be overheard. I thank you I'm not like other men, exuding prideful arrogance, undue importance on oneself. He begins to pray. And you know, some translations say that he, he prayed thus with himself. And I, I think that's a better description. I don't think he was praying to God at all. He was praying to hear himself talk. And I wonder if we ever do that. Do we ever pray just to hear ourselves speak? God, I'm so blessed that I'm better than most. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for me. Especially the real sinners. Brian over here. I'm sorry, sorry. I'm always in church. I go to all the Bible studies. I listen to this really awesome podcast from Pastor David Beatty called Building a Life of Prayer, available wherever you get your podcast. I thank you, God, for me. That kind of pride-filled prayer, I don't believe, ever reaches the ears of God. It's not a prayer, it's an attempt to build ourselves up by putting others down. And so we're all tempted perhaps by that. We have that old original sin in us, our humanity. How do we avoid weaponizing our prayers or praising ourselves in prayer? 
I'd suggest that the first necessary step is one that was put really well by Pastor R.A. Torrey. He said, not a single syllable should be uttered in prayer, either in public or in, our, in private, in our hearts in silence, until we are really conscious, fully aware that we are coming into God's presence. Being mindful of who we are bowing before goes an awful long way of stripping us of that pride and moving us to a place of humility. And then we see the tax collector, again, standing off, not even lifting his eyes, just exuding humility, an unassuming posture, a simple and yet rich, rich prayer, voiced in desperation. And here's the thing. The attribute of humility versus pride that we see here, that's going to become the crux of the entire parable. We'll see that in a few moments, but this is so critical. In fact, if you get nothing else out of this morning, our time together, please don't leave here without hearing this. Humility, Christ-like humility, is the greatest pursuit we will ever endeavor in our life as followers of Jesus. If we ever hope to fulfill what we are told in 1 John 2, 6, that those who say that he abides in Jesus, ones who say I abide in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked, we have to take seriously the command of humility. Meaning our desire to fully love, comfort, forgive, to witness to others requires a humble heart. Nothing less. Humility is table stakes, if you know that term. It's the minimum point of entry for an ever-maturing follower of Jesus. And I'm guessing, unfortunately, if you look around, not in here, but if you look around in the world, and I'm using the global church as well in this, it's not lost on any of us that humility is in especially short supply. There's not a whole lot of it, it seems. It's not natural. It goes against our humanity. It's not easy. It's not popular. So it seems that maybe many have just stopped trying. Besides, it's a whole lot more fun. It's more convenient. It's more reassuring to live our life as the world might live it. Uh, the expression and celebration of self-promotion and self-centeredness. There's this intoxicating, ego-boosting applause whenever you do you and hashtag look at me. Or we buy into the philosophy if we're ever going to be a wonderful employer or, or a manager or a boss or an a athlete or student or whatever it might be, we've bought into the philosophy that the first shall be first, the last shall be last. But we have to know that all of those and more are directly opposed to the ways and the expectations of a radically reversed kingdom. See, humility is so important to God that he demonstrates it throughout Scripture. Over and over and over, he humbled himself just to come down from heaven, to die for us, to be born a humble birth, to humble parents in a humble village. He came not to be served, but to serve. He washed feet. He turned the other cheek. In just a few weeks, we are going to see the king of kings, the humble king, arrive very humbly on a humble donkey. On and on and on. To accurately describe the Jesus of the Bible, 
we cannot leave out the many references, the emphasis on his humility. In fact, if we think about the great Sermon on the Mount, it's where he would introduce us to these beatitudes. Blessed are. The very first one is so important that the others build on it. They, they are required for it. They're, it's instrumental. The very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. And so maybe the issue for those who claim to follow Jesus but reject the concept of humility, willfully living in pride, maybe it's a misunderstanding of what biblical humility is or isn't. See, biblical humility in no way requires or means that one has low self-esteem, is insecure, passive, indecisive, or refuses to use the gifts and the talents that, one, that God has given them. Rather, biblical humility is being free from the concern and the priority and the pursuit of power and prestige and position. It means submitting to biblical authority and in that finding great joy in putting others first, over one's own comfort, over one's own preferences, desires often, for the sake of the gospel, for the shared mindset of Christ. And if all of that is still sort of floating around up here and you're looking for a good definition, man, I love how C.S. Lewis put it, short and sweet. Biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. Isn't that good? But let's say I do desire this. I do want to live a humble life in a biblical, Christ-like way. But I'm discovering I've got a lot of blind spots. Again, that old original sin just sort of raises its evil head. I have come across something that I think is a very valuable blind spot detector. Uh, a litmus test of sorts. It comes from a sermon of the 18th century English pastor, Charles Spurgeon who while preaching on Christ-like humility said to know the humble heart of Christ was to be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. Be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. And see, Spurgeon is not saying that we shouldn't have self-respect or that we shouldn't have an admiration for one's heritage, or that we, that, or that we shouldn't have the, um, you know what, I'm really proud of that 5K time I, I put in last night. Not those kind of sentiments. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is that there is no allowance, no exception, no excuses for followers of Jesus to be arrogant of race, face, place, or grace. See, if we have a sense of superiority relative to race, that our ethnicity is somehow better than another, which then impacts our treatment and our attitude toward another, then we sit squarely in the place of sinful pride. It's in biblical humility that we affirm racism is a gross offense to God, and that God is even now preparing a worship around a heavenly throne of all people, nations, tribes, languages. If we become arrogant of our appearance, of our looks, I don't know how some of us ever could, but if we, if we are our face, then we have forgotten that God has created all of creation in his image, all of humanity in his image, and that God truly, truly cares as we should care about the heart, not what's on the outside. 
of place, whether that's social status or nationality, if we have any sense of supremacy, then in our arrogance, we have forgotten that our citizenship is not of this world. We have denied the biblical doctrine of God's one body, global church, and we've replaced it with an unbiblical favoritism toward those who are most like ourselves, our social circles, living under our flag. And lastly, grace. Be not proud of grace. In whatever gift God gives us, whatever provision, our daily bread, our health, our spiritual knowledge, our salvation, it's a prideful heart that believes God gives more to those he loves more. It's a humble heart that knows to receive all things with gratitude and an understanding that God's grace is always, always without exception, unmerited favor. Do not be proud of race, face, place, or grace. Pride and humility, so important to God. Well, where, where is this parable going? Where is he moving with this? Well, we see part of that primary lesson as we read verse 14. That of eternal security, our salvation. See, one kind of people places it falsely on self-righteousness, religious pride, and one fully secure on the basis of God's grace, his saving grace. The final verse, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, no way, went down to his house justified rather than the other. You mean the guy who walked into the temple with all sorts of mess in his life and his background, had lived much of his life outside of God's law, prayed the simplest prayer, no fanfare. This guy was considered justified. He was made right, secured in the eternal salvation that God offers. But the guy who knew the Torah, back of his hand, constantly at temple, seemingly did all the right things, that guy was considered not justified in the eyes of God? How, how is that? How, how do we reconcile that? Jesus, what are you talking about? Well, he gives us this aspect of the moral, the parable is, for everyone who exalts himself, puffs himself up, will be humbled, brought low. But the one who humbles himself, recognizes his own insignificance, will be, law, will be exalted, lift up. Again, the importance of a humble heart, a critical lesson. But I'm not so sure that's really the moral of the parable. I think there's something else at play here. I think there's a bigger idea. Something that goes beyond the emphasis of simply exalting the humble. I think when we step back and we look and consider this parable against the greater biblical context of God's character and his plan to redeem and restore us, what we see that Jesus has just illustrated is the central truth for how our prayers are answered. Both in receiving that saving grace, but also as a model for all believers to follow. Let me tell you what I mean by this. When we see the tax collector, what we see is a humble prayer for mercy, asked with a repentant heart, answered with the assurance of God's grace. Instantly. Let me repeat that. A humble plea for mercy, asked with a repentant heart, answered with the assurance of God's grace instantly. That's the big idea of the parable. 
And when I, when I look ahead in our sermon series, I just can't help. It just screams at me. Uh, the, the parallel, the big idea that is now demonstrated outside of a story and in reality. Maybe some of you are thinking it, but I'm thinking about the thieves on the cross. There were two, two thieves, two kinds of thieves. One on the one side of Jesus who was focusing solely on self-preservation. <laughs> he was exuding pride. The other, humbly acknowledging his condition, seeking mercy, asking the Lord simply to remember him. And what does Jesus say to him? I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. The answered prayer. See, one of the thieves went away justified. The other just went away. And so when I think back, and you say, well, that's for those coming to the Lord for the first time. But for God's people... I can't help but think back to 2 Chronicles 7, a passage we looked at just a few weeks here uh, in prayer. A, a, a word for the church today. I think we see this same model. See, God says, if, if my people who are called by my name will what? Shout angrily? Point out sin and unbelievers? Blame the media? No. If they will humble themselves Pray, seek God's presence, repent of wicked ways, then, seemingly only then, God will hear us, answer our prayers. Mercy, repentance, answered prayer. A cause and effect of a humble and repentant prayer. That's the big idea of the parable this morning. And so as we come to a close, if, um, if you're here this morning... And have been trusting in yourself, works for righteousness, just really probably burning yourself out, probably exhausted. Jesus tells us that there's a prayer for mercy and your desire to turn from your past self. Offer it. He will answer that with great assurance. If you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord of your life, Scripture tells us that the humble plea of mercy is framed with a confession of Jesus as Lord and the belief that God raised him from the dead. Turning to Jesus to a faith for the future. God answers that prayer instantly. And if you have questions about any of that, please let us know. That's our greatest privilege. Our greatest responsibility is to have that conversation with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, saved by grace through faith, but admit the struggle with prideful, religious pride is real, then the humble plea for prayer of mercy is a prayer to the Lord to begin a renewed work from this moment forward, that his grace is sufficient not only to assure your salvation, but to transform each of us into his likeness more each day. And so this morning, before we observe communion, I want to allow us to examine our hearts. I'd like us to reflect on the instruction and the implication of this passage today. So we're going we're gonna to take just a, a brief moment of silence before we share in communion. And I'd encourage to think about those possible self-righteous blind spots. Ask the Lord to show us those prideful stumbling blocks in our life, to lay them down before him. Acknowledge that we're coming before his presence. Let's just take a moment right where you are in silent prayer, and then I'll, uh, I'll close in just a second. Let us pray.
Father God, be merciful to us. Lord, we know the depths of our sin, but we know the power of your forgiveness and your love. Lord, let us know that we are justified before you. We are made righteous before you in our faith through your grace only, that it's not of anything we can do or our works. Lord, help us to not think more highly of ourselves than we should. Help us to think more highly of others as you would. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to observe the uh, sacrament of communion this morning. And if you didn't pick up one of the prepackaged cups on the way in, you can just raise your hand and we have ushers that will find you and, and let you have one. And everyone else can go ahead and have theirs ready. I do want to mention that the observance of communion at River Oaks is one that is open to all who have confessed and received Jesus as Lord of their life. We believe that it is a sign and a seal of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross and an expression of the benefits that we receive because of his death and resurrection. I also like to observe in the passage about communion that it allows us to look back to the cross with great reverence and worship. But it also allows us to look around in the present at the fellowship and the celebration of sharing this meal with brothers and sisters. It also points us forward with great hope and anticipation to his second coming. You could get the bottom of the cup, your wafer ready, and I'll read in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, take eat the body of Christ broken for you. Remove the top of your juice. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, take, drink the blood of Christ for the remission of our sins. part of our benediction this morning, I'd ask you to just stand and join in that final verse and chorus of that wonderful hymn as a reminder of how great God is.